0: Everyone doing today, Monday, March fourteenth, March fourteenth, twenty twenty one. To shout out all the Pisces. use a little inspiration materials quote his divine power has granted us everything concerning life, and goodliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. Second Peter 1 and 2. Nor things to come shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord Romans eight thirty eight through thirty nine. Then said Jehovah, I will watch over my word to perform it, Jeremiah 1 and 12. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118 and 16. Jesus, Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3, quote, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to the uttermost part of the world. Acts 1 and 8 For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16 and 25 quote "Take my yoke up on you and learn from me for I am gentle." and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your souls Matthew 11 and 29 through 30 but Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6 and 33 Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. Proverbs 3 and 5 through 6. Lo, I am with you always, even, unto the end of the world. Amen. Matthew 28. In 20.
1: Good evening, everyone, we begin the readout tonight with Vladimir Putin's barbaric war of choice in Ukraine. While his ground forces have been slowed to a crawl, Putin continues his terror campaign against Ukraine's civilian population, pulverizing residential infrastructure with missile strikes again today. His latest target was a nine-story high-rise apartment building in the capital city of Kyiv, where Russian forces struck just after 5 a.m., catching most residents still asleep. It comes as a fourth round of talks between Russia and Ukraine yielded little more than an agreement to keep the diplomatic channels open. While a path to peace remains elusive, Putin, in desperation, is now widening the war, expanding his list of targets and striking further into western Ukraine. Ukraine. Yesterday, a barrage of more than 30 Russian missiles struck a military base, killing 35 people outside the city of Lviv in the west, less than 15 miles from the border of Poland. Its close proximity to a NATO ally raises the very real possibility that Russia could draw Western powers into the war. President Zelensky issued an ominous warning about that prospect yesterday, saying it's only a matter of time before the conflict spills outside Ukraine's borders. The Ukrainian president also visited wounded soldiers at the hospital Sunday, awarding medals and taking selfies to boost morale. Separately, we learned yesterday that the first American known to have died in the war was journalist Brent Renaud, who was on assignment for Time magazine when he was shot and killed in the Kiev suburb of Irpin. This comes as foreign journalists flee en masse from Russia itself, unable to operate under the Kremlin's draconian new law that effectively bans the expression of any opposing views. In fact, a new video released by an activist group in Moscow appears to show the brutal efficiency of Putin's crackdown on dissent. The Orwellian scene shows police arresting an interview subject in Red Square at the very second she expresses her opinion.
2: I just wanted to ask you, how do you think, if you just to say two words, do you to arrest or
3: not?
1: Later in that video, it appears another interview subject was arrested before she even expressed any opinion at all. Meanwhile, the humanitarian crisis is deepening across Ukraine, including in Mariupol, where Russian forces have been indiscriminately striking residential apartments and other non-military targets. Many were finally able to flee from that city along evacuation routes today. But according to the city council, those who remain are running out of their last reserves of food and water. The New York Times reports that the only thing that draws people from their basements and bomb shelters, aside from scrounging for food, is the daily hope that they will be able to be evacuated. Nearly 2,200 people have died in Mariupol since the start of the war, according to government officials. And we now know that number includes pregnant woman, the pregnant woman and her baby, whose tragic story captivated the world. Those devastating images last week captured her fight for survival after Russian forces needlessly and mercilessly bombed a maternity ward. Now, gut-wrenching new reporting today portrays a scene of desperation and distress as doctors labored to keep her alive. Quote, realizing she was losing her baby, medics said she cried out to them, kill me now. As painful as that is to hear, that is the reality of Putin's brutal war. And he's becoming increasingly mired as he pursues the age-old folly of regime change in ukraine in an ominous new sign of russia's intentions russian forces have reportedly abducted at least two mayors to install pro-russian replacements in cities under their control in fact ukrainian officials have released a cctv video alleging to show one of those mayors being escorted away by russian troops on friday yet according yet according to the washington post ukrainians continue to push back against their occupiers signifying that if Russia plans to occupy Ukraine, then Ukrainians are showing that there will be significant resistance. Despite the risk to their lives, we've seen more video of Ukrainian protesters standing up to and shouting down Russian troops. Now, let's remember, this is a country that Putin thought that he could bring to heel within 48 hours. But the reality is that he hasn't met his short-term military objectives on the ground, let alone a grand strategy of replacing President Zelensky with a Russian-friendly puppet. And given Putin's request for help from China, it appears he may finally be realizing how badly his invasion is going. Joining me now is NBC News correspondent Cal Perry in Lviv, Ukraine, MSNBC national security analyst Clint Watts, and Ivigen Klypto- Klyptopotenko, a Ukrainian, chief, a Ukrainian chef, sorry, and winner of Master Chef Ukraine. And I apologize for butchering his name. Uh, Cal, I want to start with you first because, you know, early on in this war, um, being in Lviv, generally meant being safe that was the route out of town if you look at a map of ukraine that is far to the west on the way you know to to get out of the country the war seems to have come your way
4: Absolutely. And for the more than 300,000 refugees who have settled at least temporarily um, in this city, uh, it's been a shock. You know, 48 hours ago, this city was woken up by the sound of distant explosions as eight rockets hit that airfield, killing at least 34 people, wounding another 130. And we have these consistent threats from the Russian government to take out the supply lines that are feeding the war in the east, to take out the armed shipments that are coming in, that we know are coming in uh, from Poland. And so there's a there's a concern here that's growing that we're going to see more airstrikes. The fueling of weapons to the east is vital. It's vital for the Ukrainians to carry on this war. You mentioned the city of Mariupol. There are 400,000 civilians still trapped inside that city. And as you said, the, the conditions there are deteriorating far beyond sort of what we could possibly imagine, where you have people now reportedly fighting over food, people afraid to go above ground. And it's even worse in the northern city of Kharkiv, where you don't even have the mass graves that you have in Mariupol. Mass graves are the last desperation from a city that cannot go above ground, that can't even carry out funerals, and in Kharkiv, you don't even have that. You have bodies laying in the streets, including the bodies of rushed soldiers that have gone unclaimed. In the capital, you have this slow tightening, this slow tightening and strangulation of the city, and again, indiscriminate shelling of these residential areas. So as the battle space lays out, you can now sort of look at it as a two-front war. You have the ground campaign that is, again, slowly moving into these urban areas, and then you have this aerial campaign that has now been widened and brings in the quest- Question, what will nato do if these convoys if these armed shipments are continued to be targeted what will nato's response be and of course this close to the border in a situation where you already have two and a half million refugees have fled the country there are at least that many people internally displaced we heard today from the mayor of krakow saying that krakow is now full that they've seen an increase of population of 15 um, so the humanitarian situation is now sort of off a cliff and you have these horrendous horrendous uh stories coming out of the eastern part of the country where it doesn't look like the sieges are going to lift anytime soon joy
1: wow uh, let me bring you in clint um Clinton Watts to talk about this, because it does appear that the, the goal at this point just seems to be to crush and strangle and pulverize Ukraine from all sides. Um, that doesn't sound like a military strategy or a strategy to, to successfully occupy a country of 44 million people, but it sure is leaving a lot of people dead.
5: That's right, Joya. A uh, lot's going on, but in different places, you see different things. I think uh, where Cal is at, here is Lviv, this is where Cal is at, this is that airfield that was struck very close to, to the Polish border. You're seeing airstrikes out here to the west. Those airstrikes are all about cutting off the supplies, because the rest of the strategy is happening out here in the east. Specifically, what we see is here in Kiev. If you looked last week we were talking about the convoy well the convoy was breaking up but it was also being reinforced and so you saw them moving in you now see them moving down establishing what we call battle positions these positions are essentially designed to cut off supplies coming in from the west and ultimately from the south bigger picture though i think what we're looking at is here in the north this is the strategy of siege warfare that we saw We've seen in Mariupol where they were coming in on multiple axes of advance. Here's the thing. The Ukrainian military is doing an amazing job of stopping these armored convoys, but the question is, how long can they do it? And to keep going, they're, you're going to see the Russians try and encircle and ultimately envelop the city here to the south. Those supply lines, they have to stay open, they have to stay here uh, coming into the south so that the Ukrainian military can keep up this fight as long as possible. That brings me back to what's going on in the south. We were talking about where Russia's done better or worse in the south their military units have advanced in a big way but there are two areas really to watch one of them is mykolev mykolev is a city where essentially the russians have pushed their furthest advance in the south and ultimately want to take this bridgehead so they can move towards moldova if they can move towards moldova they'll cut off the southern half of the country But they're meeting stiff resistance from the Ukrainian military there. And Cal mentioned Kharkiv, Kharkiv being up in this eastern area right close to the border. Watch the Russians moving forward. This is Zaporizhia, that uh, nuclear plant we were talking about 10 days ago. They are trying to move to Dnipro. From Dnipro, if they can move south from Sumy, they would cut off the whole east of the country, essentially surrounding these Ukrainian forces here. Last note. Joy, see these light blue dots? Those are protests against the Russian occupiers, and there's a lot of resistance in this area. So keep an eye on this. It's still a contested battle space. Even to this day, the Russians have blown past them, but a lot to watch.
1: Let me ask you very quickly a follow-up question, because here we have two mayors who've been abducted, replaced with puppets. If there's still resistance to those, those, those points of occupation, do the Russians have enough troops to fight that occupation, protest, the resistance, and advance to Kiev? I think the one spot to watch, Joy, for
5: this is Kherson. Kherson is a city that they essentially took about a week or so ago. But you've seen protesters come right back out into the streets right after it. Separately, the mayor vanished from their replacement. They're talking about an independent state of Kherson. This is a very Russian approach, similar to what we saw in Donbass. But I don't know how they keep this. So They actually moved— what they would call riot police down to son from Russia. Interesting, though, if there are protests in Russia, there's a lot less riot police to deal with them in Russia. So they're trying to do this occupation force, but I don't know how they would, they can't even control one city very well. I don't know how they would do all of southern Ukraine or even the eastern part of Ukraine at all. Hey
6: building. They're also struck. Firefighters rushing to rescue residents trapped inside. Peace talks ending again with no resolution as Russia moves closer to NATO member Poland. And tonight, the warning from the U.S. to China over the conflict. Nearly three million people have now fled the violence, but the journey out is long and dangerous. Tonight, our Ali Aruzi speaks to a 17-year-old who left his parents to escape with his grandmother, but their quest for safety instead ended in tragedy. Back here at home, the urgent manhunts in New York City. Police searching for a man they believe is behind a string of shootings targeting homeless people. And he may be tied to several crimes in Washington, D.C. as well. Plus, the man wanted for stabbing two employees inside New York City's famed Museum of Modern Art. Gas prices soaring. Surveillance video showing the driver accused of siphoning nearly 1,000 gallons of fuel from a gas station in Houston, Texas. Gas prices in the U.S up nearly 30 cents from a week ago will americans see any relief at the pump royal absence Queen Elizabeth missing the annual Commonwealth Day service and asking her son, Prince Charles, to stand in. And is a family rift widening, Prince Harry announcing he will miss a memorial service for his grandfather, Prince Philip, on the one-year anniversary of his death. Also Tom Brady returns, the superstar quarterback coming out of retirement after just 40 days. What it could mean for the league. Top Story starts right now. Good evening, I'm Kate Snow in for Tom Yamas tonight. We begin another week on Top Story with the war in Ukraine. Peace talks again ending with no resolution as attacks escalate in civilian areas. A series of airstrikes hitting the capital city of Kyiv today. Residents rushed out of a burning apartment building and drone footage now showing massive destruction in the southern city of Mariupol where a convoy of humanitarian aid is desperately trying to reach those unable to leave. The number of people trying to leave the war zone is staggering now. More than 2.8 million have fled the violence, with more European countries now seeing an influx of Ukrainians. Ukraine's President Zelensky will address U.S. lawmakers virtually this week after Congress passed a bill that would provide nearly $14 billion in aid to Ukraine. And late today, the White House warning China of, quote, significant consequences if Beijing provides Moscow with economic or military support. Let's get right to Richard Engel in Ukraine once again tonight.
7: Beware of Russia on its back foot. Apparently frustrated by its lack of progress on the battlefield, Russia is laying waste to Ukrainian cities and civilians from afar. Ukraine says this is an incoming Russian missile intercepted by Ukrainian air defenses falling and exploding on the streets of Kyiv. Nearby, Russia destroyed an apartment building. The strike just after 5 a.m. when most people were sleeping. There are no military targets here. This is just a civilian apartment building surrounded by other apartment buildings. And the only possible reason for attacking it is to kill civilians and terrorize the population just a few miles from the center of Kyiv. Serhi says intuition must have woken him. He was having a smoke when suddenly... In the slow time of extreme fear, he saw a flash, and then the windows and doors came crashing in. Nina, a downstairs neighbor, was shaken, but unhurt. In the aftermath, she was happy not to be alone. Do you have a mother, she asked. Her name happens to be Nina, too. Nina's three-room apartment is devastated. She was in bed asleep. And and all of this fell on top of Mm you? But it's amazing you're not hurt. Not even in a little broken glass,
8: nothing. I had
7: a big blanket on top of me, so all good, she says. Adding, she feels pity for Putin's mother, who is turning in her grave that she gave birth to such a nasty bastard. Outside lay the body of a man killed for being in his home. But even here spirit of resistance is unbroken. Meanwhile, Russia is taking its war further west, striking a military training base near the Polish border, while in the east, hitting Ukrainian homes in Kharkiv, Volnovaha and Mariupol, where a humanitarian corridor today finally pierced the blockade, allowing hundreds of packed cars to leave. But too late for this pregnant woman in an iconic image after the bombing of a paternity hospital. She died, according to the Associated Press, when she was told her baby was dying. She said, kill me now. Attempts to save her were unsuccessful. Kate, for the fourth time, Ukrainian and Russian delegations met for peace talks. This time it was virtual, but for the first time, the two sides agreed to temporarily pause, that was the phrase they used the talks, and then continue them tomorrow.
6: And both sides are hinting, just hinting, at possible progress. Kate? All right, Richard, thank you. Stay safe there. As the war continues to rage on, more than 2.5 million Ukrainians have now left the country, made their way to safety. Hungary alone has taken in more than 200,000 refugees, and that number continues to increase. NBC's Gabe Gutierrez is there with more. Tonight, the
9: war's refugee crisis, which the UN calls the largest since World War II, is expanding throughout more of Europe. Hungary has already seen more than 250,000 refugees, second only to Poland. Today, Margarita Prosolovich told us a bombing leveled her home. She and her 13-year-old son Nikita now have only the clothes on their backs. It's just impossible to imagine, she says. This is the growing refugee crisis. This train station in Budapest sees thousands of refugees each day. Many of them spend hours here before boarding trains to other parts of Europe. Other countries such as Slovakia, Moldova, and Romania are also seeing an influx. Now, stoic are the faces of women and children, burdened with uncertainty, hardened by catastrophe. This man told us because of his age and a disability, he was one of the few men allowed to leave Ukraine. How horrible is it to have to leave
10: your homeland behind
0: Um. Well, it's, it's like, you know, you, you, you have a feeling of death behind you.
9: Alex Baga is a Hungarian volunteer handing out supplies. He's just
8: 15 years old. And I have a friend whose whole family is dead. No one deserves this. I really don't like it. I'm trying my best to help, but I'm just a fifty-year-old kid. I can't really do much.
9: We also found a group of international college students, many of them Nigerian, who attended Sunni State University in northeastern Ukraine. I wake up every day confused, isn't it? Sometimes I don't even really want to wake up. I just want to keep
11: sleeping because when I wake up, I think about my problems and they are so overwhelming.
9: They showed us pictures of their harrowing escape, fighting their way through a crowded train station after spending two nights in a bunker, terrified of the shelling outside. I wouldn't even pray for my enemy to go through, go through that because, I mean, like, we couldn't sleep. It's like you're sleeping with one eye open. A US-based charity, Global Empowerment Mission is taking donations to rent these students' Airbnbs in Hungary. A refuge, if only temporary, for the innocent caught in war.
6: And Gabe joins us now from Budapest. Gabe, how many total refugees are we talking about now?
9: Well, Kate, the UN says that already more than two and a half million refugees have already left Ukraine. And those students, like so many other refugees we spoke with, don't know when or if they'll be able to return to the country. They're just taking it one day at a time as they make their way west.
6: Kate. Gabe, thank you so much. The trip for refugees is a dangerous one, fraught with hardship. NBC's Ali Aruzi is in Lviv, where one family has met with conditions far worse than they ever could have expected. And he has their heart wrenching journey.
12: 17-year-old Vlad and his grandmother Lubov's passage to safety turned into a desperate scramble to save her life. Their perilous, long journey took them from the battered east to the relative safety of the west, but it didn't go as planned. The strain of it all became too much. Lubov, worried for her pet cat, collapsed just after arriving in Lviv by bus. When uh, we went out from the bus, she became bad,
13: Uh, so she has some problems with heart. Uh, And
12: uh, I went to the medical center uh, and asked for the help. An overwhelmed Vlad found that help for his grandmother from the Samaritan's Purse, an American charity with a health clinic helping the displaced at the train station in Lviv.
14: So we ran over there, literally, and um, started administering
12: aid. Uh, She had a pulse when she got there, she was uh, was weak, uh, sweaty. No time for a stretcher. A nurse named Peter lifted her off his back and ran to the medical tent. It's not perfect, but when you're in a crisis, uh, you do what you have to do. Vlad was already emotional. He had to leave his parents behind. I am really nervous. Uh, I hope that all will be okay. Uh, and uh, I think that I did uh, everything what I can. To help my uh, grandmother. He told us his grandmother's name, Lubov, means love in Ukrainian. She wants to stay at home, but it is
13: very dangerous to uh, last at the sumi because every day their attacks are more uh, are bigger and bigger. We will stay here. My grandmother don't want because she thinks that
12: uh, in other countries she can't. Uh, Leave uh, because she loves Ukraine. The medics stabilized her.
8: Where's the cat? The cat's here.
12: She was taken into a waiting ambulance, but it didn't drive off. From outside, we could see the vehicle bouncing up and down. The medics were working desperately on her. But again, her vitals dropped. This time, nothing could be done. She couldn't be saved. (laughs) I, I can see. Vlad broke down. The bombs and bullets may not have killed his grandmother, but the stress of war did. What's next for you, Vlad? What are you gonna do now?
15: I don't know. I called my mother. She will come here.
12: Lviv was meant to be a safe place for Vlad and his grandmother. The tragedy etched on his face. He clutched onto her few belongings and her cat, devastated at the loss, the future uncertain.
6: It's just absolutely devastating. Ali Aruzi joins me now from Lviv. Ali, where are Vlad and his family now?
12: Well, Vlad's mother travelled back from Sumi to pick up her mother's body and take it back to be buried. Vlad's next move is uncertain. We got in touch with Vlad's mother and asked her if we could interview her. She sent us a message back saying she's too emotionally exhausted to talk to us and that the war has taken away her dearest person. And that's part of the tragedy here, Kate. So when people say goodbye to their loved ones, they don't know if it's gonna be the last time.
6: In the US tonight, we're learning that the President could be switching up his diplomacy plan on the war in Ukraine and is in early discussions about travelling to Europe. NBC News senior White House correspondent Kelly O'Donnell joins me now from the White House. So Kelly, what is the White House considering?
16: Well, good evening, Kate. There are several officials who tell us that discussions are underway for a possible trip to Europe in the coming weeks for President Biden. This would be a chance for him to show solidarity with European allies and, of course, the NATO countries that are doing a couple of important things. They've been working with the United States to impose those financial penalties on Russia. And we know in the eastern flank of NATO, there are also real concerns about the refugee flow and the vulnerabilities they may face with Putin's aggression so if the president chooses to go he could demonstrate that solidarity and he could deliver a powerful message at this point the White House is not saying that a trip is on it's under
6: consideration Kate and Kelly in addition to that we learned that Ukraine's president may address the US Congress what do you know about that
16: well, this would be a virtual address that would be pumped into the U.S. Congress, and by extension, then the American people could see it as well. And we've seen how uh, President Zelensky has been using his way to communicate around the world as a persuasive tool to try to talk about the things that he needs in this fight. And we also know that he is continuing to say he wants a no-fly zone, something the U.S. does not support. And he wants fighter jets, something that some lawmakers do support, but the White House has not Not been supportive of instead the Biden White House wants to send and is continuing to send other kinds of defensive weapons to Ukraine it's also a chance for President Zelensky to make his personal appeal to American lawmakers to thank them for the support they've been giving and to reach out personally so that'll be something everyone will watch very closely this Wednesday Kate
6: all right. Kelly O'Donnell at the White House Force. Kelly, thank you. With Russia escalating its attacks across Ukraine, we want to bring in Colonel Matt Dimick. He's the former director for Russia and Eastern Europe at the National Security Council. Colonel, nice to have you with us. Uh, let's start with what happened over the weekend, that strike near the Polish border at a military base. It raised a lot of concerns. If there's an accidental strike on Polish territory, NATO could officially invoke Article 5 for collective defense. Do you think NATO countries need to be prepared for that possibility? What should
14: the response be? Absolutely. That needs to be a uh, primary concern of uh, all the NATO nations that are on Ukraine's border. And those strikes on Yavri, they just show uh, how close Russia is willing to go. They're going to be willing to come right up to the line of uh, NATO's Article 5. So uh, NATO ha- has got to be prepared for it. And we uh, just have to be uh, ready for any kind of accident or incident. Now, taking a step back, we I don't think anybody is concerned that uh, you know Russia is uh, about to take on the NATO Alliance at this point in time, while they're struggling to make uh, any sense of their campaign in Ukraine. So I think uh, any kind of incident that's going to happen, I think the initial uh, conclusion should be that it was probably an accident or a straight plane that crossed the border, and NATO needs to keep its head about, uh, you know, NATO leaders need to keep their wits about them and make sure that uh, they understand exactly what's happening if there is an incident and take the appropriate measures without overreacting or reflexively uh, implementing some kind of Article 5 response unnecessarily.
6: Let me ask about uh, Russia and China. U.S. officials have said that Russia asked China for military equipment and support. China's pushing back on that report. But does it concern you that there might be an agreement going on between Russia and China?
14: I have my doubts. I know that uh, uh, Russia and China uh, famously not long ago said they have a uh, friendship without limits. But I think that uh, China is introducing Russia to exactly what some of those limits might be. China's been trying to walk a very fine line here. They didn't sign up for a, a long, protracted... Uh, and blundering invasion of Ukraine and all of the things that come with being yoked to uh, uh, Russia's invasion there. So they want to be uh, seen as uh, still supporting Russia, but without all the baggage that comes with it, so that they aren't invoking the wrath of this anti-Russia global coalition that could exact some serious penalties on China's economy if China is perceived as being too supportive of Russia's war aim. So I don't expect uh, China to be uh, shipping any arms or equipment to Russia anytime soon or making any moves in that direction.
6: The White House, the Pentagon have said repeatedly they will not institute a no-fly zone. Some military experts now are calling for a limited no-fly zone, which as I understand it, would essentially protect humanitarian aid and evacuations. Do you, do you think that's a good idea or does that carry the same risk of escalating things?
14: I don't think it's a good idea at all. I think uh, you know, there's some serious people with some serious recommendations about how to implement the no-fly zone and how to do it. And obviously the reasons are compelling. It's uh, you know, morally clear position to take, and it's a satisfying position to take. But I think all the advocates for no-fly zone uh, have uh, failed to make the argument clear on exactly how preventing Russian fixed-wing and rotary-wing aircraft from uh, existing in Ukrainian's uh, Ukraine sky uh, is worth the commensurate unlimited risk of uh, invoking a conflict between NATO and Russia. Um, The the vast majority of civilian casualties, we think, are being produced by uh, rockets, artillery, uh, and just ground fire, uh, which a no-fly zone would have no impact. Uh, And none of the advocates for no-fly zone have been able to explain how exactly uh, we're going to ask the Russians not to test that airspace and expect them to sit idly by. There will obviously, uh, Russians are going to test that with their aircraft. And they also are, you know, the advocates for no-fly zone don't have an answer on, What do we do about the scores of sophisticated Russian anti-aircraft equipment that certainly aren't going to sit idly by on Russian territory that uh, no-fly zone aircraft would have to deal with?
6: Colonel Matt Dimmick, interesting to talk to you always. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. While this war is being fought on many different fronts, a propaganda battle is also underway. Russia now accused of spreading disinformation that is now being picked up here in the U.S. NBC's Jacob Ward has that story.
17: There was a network consisting of at least 30 biological laboratories.
18: At the UN, Russia's ambassador pushed a conspiracy theory Friday, saying at least 30 research labs in Ukraine are actually U.S.-backed bioweapons facilities, conducting what he calls dangerous experiments. U.S. officials vehemently deny the accusations.
1: I will say this once. Ukraine does not have a biological weapons program.
18: And they warn Russia could be trying to justify its invasion.
16: This influence campaign is completely consistent with long-standing Russian efforts to accuse the United States of sponsoring bio uh, weapons. This is um, a classic move by the Russians.
18: While Russia is amplifying this conspiracy theory now, it appears to have begun on far-right social networks in the U.S. back in February, 10 days before the invasion. And now it's gone viral in America. Far-right voices online, cable news, and public figures who are rewarded with millions of views. Facebook, Twitter, and others have banned Russian state media and its coverage of this narrative.
5: Because they trend online, it means that mainstream media hosts or social media influencers are incentivized to essentially pick up on those narratives and amplify them because it brings more eyeballs to their content, more clicks on their platforms, and ultimately can be more dollars in their pocket. How can we solve this
19: problem?
20: Some of the solutions are going to involve holding the actors with disproportionate power in this conversation responsible.
18: With independent and Western journalism shut down in Russia, citizens there are being regularly misinformed. But misinformation is finding an audience here in the wide open West as well. Jake Ward, NBC News.
6: Still ahead tonight, the multi-state manhunt, a suspect wanted for a string of deadly shootings targeting homeless people, and now he's being attacked, being linked to attacks in New York City and Washington, D.C. Plus, the stabbing caught on camera inside the Museum of Modern Art in New
0: Concerning you To guard you In all your ways Psalm 91
14: Shenzhen, the technology manufacturing hub of China Will be shut down for the next week Only essential businesses are allowed to open there This is a move that's expected to have ripple effects On the global supply chain, here's NBC News foreign correspondent Janice Mackey-Frayer.
21: After largely controlling the pandemic, China is now facing its worst COVID crisis in two years. And it's seriously testing the zero COVID strategy here. There have been a couple thousand new cases every day across much of the country. That is considered a lot here. And it's impacting daily life. It's particularly bad in the northeastern province of Jilin, along the border with North Korea. The entire province has been locked down. 24 million people are banned from leaving the province or from traveling between cities. In the southern end of the country in Shenzhen the high-tech hub there are 17 million people under partial lockdown public transit has been closed and they're expecting an impact on manufacturing shipping and the global supply chain there are restrictions too in Shanghai where flights have been diverted and schools are closed and even here in Beijing people are being urged to not leave the city while in Hong Kong they're having to rush in COVID workers from the mainland it's the pace at which this surge just happened that's uh, worrying officials. Much of it has come in the past week. Uh, the approach here is to still isolate every positive case. So naturally they're concerned the hospital system is going to be overwhelmed and there just aren't as many ICU beds as what's needed for a country this size. Already the testing system is showing stri- signs of strain too, but the rapid home tests that they've been wanting to introduce, it's just not set up yet for people to buy or to record the results. So authorities are targeting mobility they're urging people to stay put and in a lot of cases just not giving people the choice
22: thanks i think we're definitely definitely living in a historical moment this is the first time you can watch a war play out on your phone, you can hear from the people who are experiencing the worst of it, their own documented stories in real time. And I think the White House was tapping into the fact that a lot of people right now are getting all of their information about yeah. Ukraine from TikTok, especially people in my generation. And I think their goal was for us to take information that they shared, of course, to our own fact checking and our own critical thinking, and then share our perspectives with the millions of audiences, uh, audience members collectively that we have about their situation so that they know that the information that they're getting is honest and verified.
23: So will you do that as you're creating new videos? Will you be thinking about what you learned in that briefing?
22: Yes, immediately after the briefing I drafted a video and made a recap of the question that I was able to ask as well as some of my thoughts about the answers that the press secretary gave us. And I think I also was able to draft so many more scripts that I might put out over the next Mm -hmm. few days about the situation based Mm -hmm. on what we experienced.
23: Now, Jules, you've said that initiatives like this empower content creators to call out misinformation on TikTok. Let's dig into just how important that is, especially for our viewers who aren't on TikTok, who aren't in the platform. Explain what calling out misinformation looks like. Explain what that plays out like in a comment section, for example.
24: Yeah, so I think something I also want to make clear in this meeting is that seeing that TikTokers are meeting with the White House is a bizarre headline, um, but it wasn't the 15-year-old TikTokers that were at this meeting. The median age was likely 30, and we were all in the realm of whether it was commentary or reporting on current events or culture. So all creators here at this meeting already felt compelled to call out misinformation, but the internet is powerful and it is overwhelming. There's an overwhelming amount of information, especially on TikTok where overnight a piece of content from a random creator who has never received reach before can go crazy getting thousands if not millions of views. Mm -hmm. So this meeting at a very high level just again made the United States initiatives very clear and made um, me confident in clarifying with my audience, whether it be in a comment section where they're feeling overwhelmed and they are not really understanding the motives of what is going on when it comes to these geopolitics. But it also gave me exposure to other creators that I can uplift in comment sections because comment sections are a extremely important part of TikTok and people who don't have the app don't necessarily understand this but they are an extension of every single video if you are watching more than three seconds of a video you are clicking on that comment section and at the end of the day how the algorithm works is you are seeing those you follow will show up at the top of the comment section so if I'm concerned about a piece of content's validity I can refer them to an array of amazing creators who are actively reporting on this throughout on TikTok there are okay. freelance journalists who hour by hour every day are reporting on the situation and you should of course refer your audience to jules and khalil really important stuff
23: it is so much part of the conversation it was even a saturday night live sketch this weekend something that you both were a part of really important thank you so much for sharing your experience with us Thank
11: thank you the smartphone many more individuals have been able to raise red flags around the world exposing crimes that may never have surfaced We also understand the barriers eyewitnesses face in verifying the truth of their evidence. Views can be biased. Footage can be edited. As an initiative of the International Bar Association, we know the legal requirements for photos and videos to be admitted as evidence in court. Recognizing the immense risks eyewitnesses take, we believe these efforts should never be in vain and potential evidence should always be admissible in a court of law. Our mission is to facilitate justice for the worst international crimes. That is why we've developed the Eyewitness to Atrocities app for eyewitnesses to easily gather footage about atrocity crimes that can be verified and assessed by professionals for legal use. When using the app, the date and location are collected from three separate sources before internal software creates a digital fingerprint for the footage, rendering it uneditable. Most importantly, We ensure a trusted chain of custody and act as verifiers once the footage is sent to us. And that's not all. Our partnerships with LexisNexis, DLA Piper and international law firms make sure that all footage is secure from hacking and analysed by a network of top lawyers for use in investigations or trials. Although atrocities are inevitable, justice is not. It requires evidence. With the Eyewitness to Atrocities app, courageous eyewitnesses to these crimes are empowered to capture the evidence needed to hold the perpetrators accountable, to seek justice for the worst international crimes.
25: you were watching this coverage uh, and it happened. Were you were you expecting that at some point something like this might happen on Russian television?
2: Uh, Hi, Lawrence. No, I actually never expected to see that on uh, state-controlled television because it is so tightly controlled by the Kremlin and uh, this this woman, my heart goes out to her for her bravery. I've never expected to see anything like that and uh, it made uh, an enormous impact. Uh,
25: Stanislav Kutcher, uh, you worked in, in Russian media. You obviously know, we all know, uh, just how tightly controlled it all is. Uh, what was your reaction to seeing this? What do you think the impact will be?
26: Well, definitely the first thing I did when I saw that, I posted it on my Telegram channel because I wanted to share the news with as many people as possible. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't say I was, well, of course I was happy. To see that, because uh, uh, Marina Oskhanikova is definitely the embodiment of uh, the kind of people, thanks to whom Putinism, Putin regime, will fall apart like the house of cards, probably sooner than we expect, and that's exactly the impact of uh, what happened of uh, Marina's uh, brave, courageous, and obviously historic act Uh, more people in russia will now see that nothing is impossible they will see that um it's never too late to admit you were wrong and do something right um so that you'll be okay with uh on terms with your conscience and that's exactly what marina did and uh, uh, obviously everybody myself included are now worried about where she is right now and I'm in touch with Pavel Chikov who is uh, the guy who is in charge of uh, the group you earlier mentioned uh, human rights uh, group uh, and um, I do hope that in the next hours we'll know where she is because she spent uh, several hours with the police right there in Ostankino that's the television center uh, where everything happened and then her trace literally disappeared nobody from her.
25: And uh, Julia Davis, we've seen videos of people being arrested in the street uh, for holding up, uh, literally there's one video of a person who holds up a blank piece of paper with no message on it at all. Uh, that was taken as protest enough by Russian police. So she knew, uh, Marina knew what was going to happen to her if she did this
2: absolutely because putin's russia is essentially an open-air penal colony she took an enormous risk she knows there will be very severe repercussions and he did it anyway and uh, that will empower and encourage others because the truth is unstoppable and courage is contagious
25: Uh, stanislav you know uh, some of these television executives in russian media tell me what happens Uh, Immediately after this happens on screen, it could be that Vladimir Putin was watching uh, that tonight uh, when this happened. Uh, Does he pick up the phone? Do the executives go into full panic mode? What happens? Who gets fired? What's the Putin reaction? uh well first
26: uh it's worth mentioning that uh yukaterina andreva the uh news show host who was there who we uh, whom we just saw She's uh one of putin's favorite uh propaganda peddlers in russia and uh so yes it can't be excluded that he uh was watching when the whole thing happened uh and i'm pretty sure that even if he was not he. Um, either has been shown that fragment already or will see it uh, first thing in the morning. Um, What happens? Well, um, when I was fired from national television in Russia, as far as uh, that was 21 years ago already, uh, we had a show and uh, uh, as far as I know, uh, Putin's press secretary, the guy in charge of the uh, so-called Ministry of Truth, he calls, Right away, he calls uh, the editor in chief of the channel, the president of the channel. So, uh, and that's how it happens. And everybody goes crazy, of course. So, uh, um, I don't, th- I don't think anything has changed that radically in the past 21 years. I mean, it was that bad back then, and it's uh, pretty much the same right now, I think. But um, uh, one thing I'm pretty sure of is that Constantine Ernst who is the president of Channel One, uh, I, I do think he will resign in the next few days. Um, either he will be fired or he'll uh, you know, file a resignation letter himself.
25: And uh, Julia Davis, the, we've seen uh, the, the clampdown on Russian media. And what we didn't know was what opportunities would people within Russian media have uh, to express themselves this way. And when you think about all these restrictions that are on Russian media, this is about it. Uh, Just about all you could do is grab a sign and run across uh, a set uh, with the cameras rolling.
2: That's basically it. And there was uh, not, a, not a guarantee that this would even work, but it's uh, very powerful uh, what she did. And uh, it resonates uh, so deeply with people, not only in Russia, but also in Ukraine, since uh, Russian state media is selling this uh, impenetrable image of total support for Putin's war against Ukraine. So in that sense as well, it, uh, it matters to people um, in both countries equally. Amen. Yeah.
23: but through video conference Russian forces aren't letting up launching new attacks now in the western part of Ukraine yesterday cruise missiles hit a military base near Lviv killing at least 35 people the attack on that base less than 20 miles from the Polish border igniting new fears that the attacks could soon spill into neighboring NATO countries
5: I feel that something new is in the air there is no safe place in Ukraine right now because uh, you're in war with a country who has missiles, who can fly
10: to any capital in the European Union. At the same time, Russian troops are also moving closer to the capital of Kyiv. New video shows heavy shelling in a residential suburb just this morning. And as the fighting intensifies, more people are trying to get out of the country. The UN now estimates more than 2.8 million people have fled the violence, most traveling to Poland officials warn they're running out of space. This morning, a troubling revelation. U.S. officials say Russia has asked China for military and economic assistance. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is set to meet with his Chinese counterpart in Rome later today. That will likely be a topic of discussion. We have a team standing by to cover all of it this morning. National security expert Jason Beardsley, NBC News White House correspondent Mike Memoli. But first, let's go to Ukraine and NBC News correspondent Molly Hunter joining us from Lviv. So, Molly, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is stressing the need for that no-fly zone again, especially after this weekend's airstrike on that military base about 20 miles from the Polish border. This is also about 35 miles from where you are in Lviv. What's the mood there, and has this changed any minds about a potential no-fly zone now that there was this attack really near NATO's doorstep?
20: yeah joseph Anna. good morning i think the people's minds that it's changed are the people who are here in Lviv. so this is the westernmost city we've been reporting from for the last two weeks it is the destination for anyone who's fleeing the violence from the east it's also the departure point for anyone getting out of the country millions of people have moved through as you just said more than 2.8 million people have left the country but a lot of people are actually staying here idps internally displaced people are staying here because they think it was safer. Well we went out yesterday to talk to people about if their risk calculation had changed now that this attack just twenty miles up the road had happened. Why I do mean, you take a look, take a listen, excuse me, to what some people had to say.
0: I feel two realities when I read the news and when I speak to some people that are very worried, or some my colleagues from the another cities, from Kiev for example. Yes, but also we have the part of
11: usual daily life. So that hasn't been changed yet. You hear the music, you see some smiling faces and uh, couples which are in love and so on. So Lviv is in the middle of
0: two feelings. So you feel very dramatic situation.
20: You've got a split screen here in Lviv. Look, families are out walking and actually there's A big protest happening right over there. There's been music out here. It's sunny. People are enjoying the day. But it's also the war is creeping closer. Now, no one was surprised that military base was attacked. It is the most famous military base in Ukraine. It's used for NATO drills. I think everyone here was just getting, starting to get a lot more nervous on Sunday morning that if they can hit that military base 20 miles up the road, it means absolutely they could hit Lviv, guys.
10: That is quite the contrast. So, Molly, earlier this morning, we know Ukraine and Russia held talks via video conference. Do we have any indication yet on how those calls went, if even just the slightest bit of progress was made?
20: Yeah, and these are happening very regularly, right? We're not getting full readouts necessarily from either side afterwards. We've just seen a tweet, though, from an advisor to President Zelensky. He says, the parties actively express their specified positions. Communication is being held, yet it's hard. The reason for the discord is two different political systems. He writes, Ukraine is a free dialogue within the society and an obligatory consensus. Russia is an ultimatum suppression of its own society. We have not heard anything about how these talks went, though, from the Russian side. Now, Ukraine has stated very clearly that a ceasefire is a top priority we know as of this morning, though, Russian forces are not holding their fire on those agreed upon humanitarian corridors.
10: And Molly, let's talk about the eastern city of Mariupol, the Red Cross now warning of a worst case scenario for the hundreds of thousands still believed to be trapped in the city. No power, no running water. Efforts to get aid to this city have failed. Do we have a sense of just how bad the situation is there right now and what can be done to help?
20: Yeah, I think it is worse than we could possibly say in words. As you mentioned, no food, no water, no medicine, uh, no heat, no electricity. It's a city of 450,000. We don't know how many people are actually still in there uh, who are essentially being starved out by the Russians. So as of last night, we knew there was a humanitarian convoy heading to Mariupol. As of this morning, we know it is blocked. It has been restarted. You guys, we believe it is still 50 miles outside of the city. I'll send it back to you.
10: All right, Molly, thank you so much. An award-winning American journalist was among those killed in Ukraine over the weekend. Yeah,
23: veteran war photographer Brent Renault was shot by Russian forces near Kyiv. He'd been in the region working on a project about the refugee crisis for time. NBC News foreign correspondent Matt Bradley has a look back at Renault's distinguished career.
27: In Ukraine, a death in the line of duty. Brent Renault, an award-winning American video journalist shot dead by Russian troops outside Kyiv. His colleague Juan was injured in the attack.
17: We crossed a checkpoint and they started shooting at us.
27: Um, so the driver turned around and they kept shooting. It's two of us. My friend is Bren Renault, and he's been shot and left behind. Renault was a seasoned reporter who specialized in hardship posts, covering Afghanistan to Africa, the Middle East to Mexico.
19: Imagine being 16 years old, leaving home on your own, eight dollars in your pocket trying to make it all the way from Honduras to the United States close to 2,000 miles
27: with credits from the New York Times NPR Rolling Stone Vice and HBO among others and he won accolades wherever he went thank you uh, this is this is a huge honor uh, for us the White House reacting to the breaking news this is obviously shocking
5: and horrifying
27: Renault the victim of another day of violence in Erpine outside the Ukrainian capital, where Russian forces continue their relentless push toward Kyiv. They're preparing to go on the offensive against Kyiv, he said. They're trying to scare us, a once prosperous suburb rendered to rubble. And a colleague who died doing what he loved. Matt Bradley, NBC News, Zhotomer, Ukraine.
23: Now, this morning, the U.S. government says it has reason to believe Russia asked China for military equipment and other support in its war against Ukraine. That's according to three U.S. officials who declined to elaborate on whether the U.S. even knows if the Chinese agreed to that request or not. NBC News White House correspondent Mike Memoli joins us now from Washington. Mike, good morning. So tell us, how is the White House responding to this? And if China were to get involved, this could seriously change the direction of the war, right?
28: Absolutely, Savannah. The White House throughout this Ukraine crisis has been keeping a very close eye on China's actions and just as importantly, their inaction during this entire crisis. You'll remember a month ago when we were talking about that meeting between Vladimir Putin and China's President Xi Jinping in Beijing when Putin went to the opening ceremony of the Olympics. U.S. officials have, over the course of the past month, accused China of tacitly supporting Russia's action by standing on the sidelines. As you say, U.S. officials are not specifying at this stage whether China has acceded to Russia's request for potentially economic or military assistance. But we heard from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on the Sunday shows yesterday reiterating what he has said throughout this, which is that if China or any other country thinks that they could make up for the economic impact that Russia has faced in the form of sanctions from the U.S., from our allies, they have another thing coming, as he put it to Chuck Todd. Now, Sullivan is in Rome today to meet with a high-ranking Chinese official. This is the highest-level engagement between any U.S. and Chinese official in months. It's being called by the White House a long-planned follow-up to a meeting that happened virtually between President Xi and President Biden a few weeks ago. But obviously, this crisis is now at the top of the agenda.
23: Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Let's now talk about that attack on a Ukraine military base just a few miles from the border with Poland. So those strikes brought this war significantly closer to NATO territory than we've seen yet. What's the reaction to that? Is there renewed concern this goes beyond ukraine
28: well president biden has been very clear on two fronts one and he repeated this over the weekend uh, that the u.s will not be engaged militarily in ukraine fighting russia there as he put it to the house democrats on friday that would be world war three But the U.S. has also been clear, and we heard this from Vice President Harris, who just returned from the region over the weekend, that the U.S. will defend every inch of NATO territory. And that's why this strike is so significant and so concerning. When we talk about the military uh, assistance that the U.S. has been providing to Ukraine in the form of equipment and also training, this strike happened at the very base where a lot of that training had been taking place. So it is significant. Now, the White House has been, again, resisting calls even from within their own party to do more, uh, to really try to confront. Russia to prevent this from escalating beyond Ukraine's borders, Uh, but at this stage, that pressure has not moved them to take steps like a no-fly zone that would be called for and potentially uh, deter Russia from doing so.
23: And now, Mike, Western intelligence has warned that Russia could be preparing to use chemical or biological weapons. Obviously, that would also change this war quite a bit, especially considering how many civilians are still within the country. How concerned is the White House indicating we should be about a chemical attack in Ukraine?
28: They're very concerned. You think about the kind of intelligence that the White House was putting out publicly, declassifying in the early days and leading up to this invasion, very specific about what they thought Russia was going to do. And in many cases, Russia did exactly that. Now they're sounding the alarm because the fact that Russia is accusing Ukraine potentially of launching false – what what U.S. officials would see as a false flag here, uh, chemical weapons attack, leads officials to believe that Russia is considering doing just that. We heard that from Sullivan on the Sunday shows. Let's take a listen.
5: Part of the reason, Chuck, that we're so concerned that this may happen is that when Russia starts accusing other countries of potentially doing something, it's a good tell that they may be on the cusp of doing it themselves. What we're here to do is to deny them the capacity to have a false flag operation, to blame this on the Ukrainians or on us, to take away their pretext, and to make the world understand that if chemical weapons are used in Ukraine, it is the Russians who will have used them. And uh, the response will, as the president said, be severe.
28: Now, the White House feels that they've been very successful by calling out Russia's behavior in advance of potentially, you know, preventing them from using this uh, as a false flag operation. The concern, though, at this point is that as Putin's advance on Kyiv and his military uh, offensive has really not provided the kind of results quickly he was hoping for, that he will resort to more extreme measures. And that's why U.S. officials are watching this so closely.
23: All right, Mike Memoli, thank you so much.
10: Let's bring in national security expert, Jason Beardsley, for more on this. He's the national executive director of the Association of the U.S. Navy. Jason, good to have you with us. So what is your reaction to our reporting that Russia requested military equipment from China? How could that
29: escalate this situation? Well, first of all, not not much of a surprise. I think, uh, you know, we in the West have known that uh, China and Russia are sort of frenemies. And uh, the fact that they've requested the supplies uh, or support, uh, that's a dangerous escalation. Uh, But China has an interest here as well. And uh, they've been watching the United States. They've been watching us in places like Afghanistan. So Xi Jinping is well aware of what he can push, where he can push the limits and where he can't. And right now, we've already made the declaration. I think President Biden has been clear as your report suggests, that there will be no U.S. military in, intervention. And uh, Xi Jinping will make the argument that the United States is also doing uh, work to provide material support to Ukraine. And so at the end of the day, this is a, this is a pretty dangerous sign uh, that China is probably looking to do support.
10: We just heard from Mali and Ukraine, Mike, also at the White House, about this airstrike near the Polish border. Do you think Putin was trying to send a message with that attack?
29: Uh, Yeah, this is a very obvious um, strategic development here. We know that Yavariv is where NATO supplies come in. There are NATO personnel on the ground at that base. And Putin just signaled earlier in the week that any support for Ukraine would be seen as a war uh, support. And so now he's opening up targeting of that supply line. This is the choke point where from Poland and from the west, all the supplies sort of start here and then move on further into the eastern provinces to uh, supply the the Ukrainians. And uh, I think we're going to see more of these strikes in areas like this because he's trying to choke that uh, supply route off. This This strategically makes sense for Putin. Jason, let's talk about another strike in the
10: eastern part of the country. We heard this morning that a pregnant woman and her baby died as a result of that attack on a maternity hospital in Mariupol last week. President Zelensky is adamant that NATO must enforce a no-fly zone to prevent more airstrikes like this one. Do you think, is there any scenario where the U.S. and its NATO allies might reconsider that decision in the coming days or the coming weeks?
29: Well, these things do have a tendency to develop and get even more escalatory as time goes. But again, the White House is reeling from You know we've been 20 years at war in afghanistan and iraq u.s soldiers that have to risk their lives in these places before we do that uh, the united states the white house would have to make a very clear case as to what uh what the objectives would be what the limits would be they have not done that yet but they've done the opposite which is say we're not getting involved no one's painted for the american people the constituents the voters why Ukraine is a, is a must secure location. And until that gets done in the American people uh, sense that we need to be in there, I think the White House is in the right place here by suggesting that we do not allow uh, the calls for the no-fly zone just to suck in American troops to another conflict of the, the third in 20 years that would put us in some very, very jeopardized positions on a flank that is very vulnerable for us. All right, Jason, as always, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
23: More than 2.8 million Ukrainians have now left their country, most of them headed to Poland, where some cities are warning their resources are maxed out. Over the weekend, the mayors of Warsaw, the capital city, and Poland's second largest city, Krakow, said they're struggling to accommodate Ukrainians once they cross the border. And now they're urging the UN and the European Union to intervene. NBC News senior national correspondent Jay Gray joins us now along the border of Poland and Ukraine. Jay, good morning. Good to have you with us. So what is the feeling along the border right now? You've been there for quite some time, but now there's been this Russian airstrike just miles from Poland. Does anything feel different?
13: Yeah, it's changed the dynamics, man. I can tell you that there are those here now who have been watching this unfold and and understand that the violence has come very close, I mean, less than 20 miles from where we're standing right now. I want to give you a look at Prashima Station. This uh, train station is one of the busiest right now, just about two miles from the actual border crossing. And, and listen, You talked about more people coming into Poland than anywhere else. Well, most of them come through this station, and and so it remains full. Uh, We see people coming across in waves. Now, I think we're seeing uh, fewer and fewer refugees making the trip right now, the end of the first wave, if you will, and there are a couple of reasons why. Uh, I think, first of all, you've got all those people who left early that wanted to get out as quickly as they could and really... uh, you know, made the trip. Uh, then things broke down in the eastern part of Ukraine. You, you couldn't make your way through. The humanitarian corridors didn't last, and, and the fighting pinned a lot of people in, and, and so you've got them working to get here, and it just takes a bit longer. Now, though, when we've seen this attack to the west, uh, the furthest west we've seen since the war began, You may see some of those who felt comfortable, felt safe in Lviv and other areas start to move in as well. So so the idea here is we're going to see a lot more people in the coming days and weeks. It's come in two waves and this is the second and many believe the the Wave that will bring many more people uh, than the first, and, and it's disheartening for a lot of those we talked to here to know that they can't stay in Krakow or Warsaw because they don't want to get too far away from the border. And you understand that. I mean, many of them have left a family member behind who is fighting, so they want to be able to get in if they can, if they, if they're allowed, and, and they also feel like they may lose some information the further away they get. So it's a real back and forth here, and, and very difficult for. Tens of thousands of families still making this trip.
23: Absolutely. Jay, you mentioned these cities that they're they're at right now, well, they're starting to warn that they're running out of space, as I mentioned, to accommodate refugees, running out of supplies. Where are people going right now once they enter Poland? You mentioned they want to stay nearby. Is it just into these sort of shelters right there? What are their other options if they have to move further and maybe somewhere, at least for the time being, more permanent?
13: Yeah, not, not many options. A lot of the shelters are just two- and three-day shelters where people can come in, get a rest, and stock up on supplies that they desperately need, and, and kind of figure out where they're going to go. A lot of the small towns and villages near the border are completely full at this point. As you talked about earlier, Krakow and Warsaw uh, really at the brink of where they can accept uh, these refugees. I know yesterday at Warsaw Station, uh, they added 17 new outbound trains, nine of those going to Berlin, and the other eight going to the Czech Republic. So they're trying to disperse, they're asking for help from other members of the EU, but, but take a look. I mean, you can see it right now, it, it it's just uh, continues to bring people in, people who don't know where they're going to go, how they're going to get there, and you're right. Many of them don't want to get too far away, but the places that are close by, the places where they could stay, are are filling up, and that's where this crisis is going to reach its peak.
23: And Jay, I have to ask you about just a heartbreaking statistic from UNICEF. They say at least half of Ukrainian refugees are children, some of them forced to travel on their own. What have you seen over the past few days when it comes to child refugees? Are you seeing some of these children who are alone? And and then what does that mean volunteers are doing for them?
13: Yeah, look, I haven't seen any that have come in alone that I know of. I I see most with families. Uh, But I have been told stories uh, about those who have come alone, some with a phone number attached to their jacket, some with a phone number written on their hand saying, call once my child makes it safe. You think about the desperation. And those parents' uh, lives when they, they said, I, I've got to save my child, but I can't uh, leave this fight ahead. So they've sent them uh, across the border. And, and what's happening with not only those children who make the trip alone, but uh, a lot of these orphans who are refugees is they are quickly moved into an area uh, where they can establish with a foster family. They, they find a place to live, and and they're re into some type of normal life, schooling for some of them, but just a quiet place to rest and and sleep, and so that's uh, top of mind for a lot of those running uh, these types of operations.
23: Absolutely, just heartbreaking to hear. Jay Gray, thank you so much once again.
10: Welcome back. We'll have the latest out of Ukraine in a few moments, including more on that deadly attack on a military base and the detailed work being done to dig through video on social media to get a more complete picture of what happened. It's all ahead. But first, let's take a look at other stories making news this morning.
23: Now, let's start with the Chicago public school system. It's one of several districts set to drop its mask mandate today, exactly two weeks after the mayor removed the mask and proof of vaccination requirements for indoor spaces. Chicago Public School CEO Pedro Martinez said this about the decision. CPS was one of the first to require universal masking in schools and we would not be moving to a mask optional model unless the data and our public health experts indicated that it is safe for our school communities. Now, the district is still encouraging students to continue wearing masks in the classroom, but some parents and teachers are still worried it's too soon to drop the mandate. NBC News correspondent Shaq Brewster joins us now from Chicago with more on how teachers and parents are reacting to this new mask policy. Shaq, good morning. So what are the big concerns teachers have about dropping this mask mandate? Are they worried about vaccination rates among students at all? What are they telling you?
30: Yeah, you hear a lot of talk about those vaccination rates, and there's some conflicting or at least competing information that you hear out there. Chicago Public Schools, in announcing this decision, they make the point that when you look at 5- to 11-year-olds, the vaccination rate among that group is above the national average, that number about 47% district-wide. They also point out that about 91% of all members of the staff are fully vaccinated. But the teachers' union comes back and says that that's not even across the city, that there are nearly 50 schools with vaccination rates at about 10% and it's because of that that you have many of them saying they have some issues. Listen here.
31: Um, not happy about it because I know in the school community that I'm in, um, the rate is just 18% for vaccination. So I'm concerned in my classroom. I only have uh, two students that are fully vaccinated it's a big concern because as we know the vaccination does not stop you from getting COVID. It stops you from going into the hospital and stops you from dying but you still I can contract COVID take it home to my mom who is uh has a very fragile immune system
30: One concern that you continue to hear is that they believe that masks have been working, that they have been keeping teachers and students safe in the classroom, and they think it's a little bit too soon to get rid of that requirement.
23: And I understand teachers are sort of confused about the timing also, because some feel it violates the agreement that was made by the teachers' union last year. Tell us about that.
30: Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about an agreement that was made about a year ago. I was in front of this exact school when... you. Uh, The dispute between the teachers union and the city of Chicago over when there would be that return to in-person instruction. And in part of that uh, agreement that the two sides came to, it came with things like air purifiers, like uh, social distancing in the classroom, and then that mask requirement that was on paper in writing. And some teachers feel that with this new rule lifting that requirement, it's now breaking that agreement. Listen to this point that uh, a teacher makes.
21: My first thought was why now we're seeing cases decline for sure. Um, but there are still lots of cases going around. Do I think CPS has made it incredibly difficult for everybody? Yes, I don't understand why teachers or families have been put in this position. So I'm sending my child to school with a mask.
30: One point that she made a little bit after that is that she will be wearing a mask. She's going to have her child wear a mask when uh, she goes to school. But again, it's now optional. And now you'll have the prospect of some kids in the classroom having that mask on and some not.
23: And, Shat, quickly, before I let you go, what about parents? What are they saying? I know it's been quite split. Some parents are ready for their kids to learn without a mask. Others might not be. What are you hearing?
30: Exactly. You can't ignore that. There is some political pressure, that there's been a lot of pressure from some parents to have that mask mandate be removed. And that is some that's the accusation that you hear out there, that there are leaders in the school that are responding to that pressure. I think, as you mentioned, you have that split. I spoke to a parent last night who said that she's going to have her daughter wear a mask when she goes to school. She said both of her daughters are very serious about having that mask on. But she said she didn't like that the masks were required. She's fine with other students in the classroom, in her daughter's classroom, not having that mask on. She believed that it should be a decision up to the parent and not up to the school district. So you have that divide that you're seeing, not just here in Chicago, but
10: across the country, Savannah.
30: All
23: right, Shaquille Brewster, thank you so much.
10: Let's bring in NBC News medical contributor, Dr. Kavita Patel, for more on the latest COVID headlines. So Dr. Patel, we're seeing these mask mandates drop Well, several countries around the world are fighting the latest variant to emerge, nicknamed by some as... Deltacron appears to be a hybrid strain of the Delta and Omicron variants. How concerned are you about this, and how much should we be preparing for even the possibility of another wave?
32: We should definitely prepare for the possibility of another wave, but not from Deltacron, which is, you're right, Joe, is that Delta variant and features of the Omicron variant in one, likely in someone who is infected with both, but it is extremely rare, and the growth rates of the very few individuals who have been infected in the UK, the US and other parts of the world have not been growing anywhere near what we see with Omicron. So we should worry about another surge, not soon, but prepare for it, but not from Deltacron.
10: I want to ask you about the World Health Organization saying it's concerned the war in Ukraine could make COVID worse in Europe. We've seen images of refugees traveling, Ukrainians hiding in small places with little circulation. How easy it is, how easy is it for COVID to spread in these situations? Is there anything that can be done in this very difficult situation to try and limit the spread?
32: Yeah, it's an incredible kind of testament to how much officials on the ground, medical, professional, public health, are trying to vaccinate people. Of course, that won't take effect immediately. But also just simple things, Joe, like passing out masks and also these treatments, that can be a game changer having these oral antiviral treatments in the form of pills, you have to get them to people when they're infected, but that is actually what the World Health Organization has purchased in bulk and other countries. Keep in mind, this isn't just limited to the Ukraine, which has a low vaccination rate, but many parts of Europe are under vaccinated. And that is why we're seeing, not just in that kind of Ukraine, Russia region, but all throughout Europe. And it's something that we need to keep an eye on because as you know, we tend to follow Europe in trend in rising in cases.
10: Yeah, they're always a bit of a crystal ball for us. Speaking of vaccines, the Pfizer CEO says a fourth vaccine shot
29: could be necessary. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. It is necessary a fourth boost right now. The the protection that you are getting from the third, it is uh, good enough. Actually, quite good for hospitalizations and deaths. It's not that good against infections, but doesn't last very long. Mm -hmm. But we are just submitting those data to the FDA, and then we'll see what the experts also will say. Very quickly, is this what you were expecting?
32: It was, it's a matter of time. When and how and what will we need for a fourth booster and how similar will it be to the other shots we had? And what's the timing that we need to do from here on out? Six months out, 12 months, but yes, expect a shot coming.
10: All right, Dr. Kavita Patel, as always, thanks so much for joining us on this Monday morning.
23: Now, violence against the Asian American and Pacific Island community has skyrocketed since the pandemic began. According to the group Stop AAPI Hate,
17: Kashiyah, the overshadowing event, the 88th Surah,
0: Al Kashiyah, the overshadowing event from the Mecca period, revealed most probably about the middle of the Mecca period. This surah derives its title from the participle noun Al-Gashiyah in the first verse. Let us begin. In the name of God, the most gracious, the dispenser of grace, Has there come unto thee the tiding of the overshadowing event? Some faces will on that day be downcast, toiling under burdens of sin, worn out by fear. About to enter a glowing fire, given to drink. From a boiling spring. No food for them. Save the bitterness of dry thorns. Which gives no strength and neither stills hunger. And some faces will on that day shine with bliss well pleased with the fruit of their striving in a garden sublime wherein thou wilt hear no empty talk. Countless springs will flow therein and there will be thrones Of happiness raised high, and goblets placed readily, and cushions ranged, and carpets spread out. Do then they who deny resurrection never gaze at the clouds pregnant, with water and observe how they are created and at the sky how it raised how it is raised aloft and at the mountains how firmly they are reared, and at the earth, how it is spread out. And so, O prophet, exhort them. Thy task is Only to exhort. Thou canst not compel them to believe. However, as for him who turns away, being bent on denying the truth, him will God cause to suffer. The greatest suffering in the life to come. For behold, unto us will be their return. and fairly it is for us to call them to account. of this surah the tenth in the order of revelation is based on the mention of the daybreak in the first verse in the name of God the most gracious the dispenser of grace consider the daybreak and the ten nights consider the multiple and the one consider the night as it runs its course consider Considering all this, could there be, to anyone endowed with reason, a more solemn evidence of the truth? (laughs) Art thou not aware of how thy sustainer has dealt with the tribe of Ad? At, the people of Iram, I-R-A-M, the many pillared, the like of whom has never been reared in all the land, and with the tribe of Thamud, who hollowed out rocks in the valley and with pharaoh of the many tent poles. (laughs) It was they who transgressed all bounds of equity all over their lands and brought about great corruption therein, and therefore thy sustainer let loose upon them a scourge scourge of suffering, for verily the sustain thy sustainer is ever on the watch. But as for man, whenever his sustainer tries him by his generosity and by letting him enjoy a life of ease, he says, My sustainer has been justly generous towards me, whereas whenever he tries him by straightening his means of livelihood, he says. My sustainer has disgraced me. But, nay, nay, O oh men, consider all that you do and fail to do. You are not generous towards the orphan, and you do not urge one another to feed the needy, and you devour the inheritance of others with devouring greed, and you love wealth with boundless love. Dan stands revealed as well as the true nature of the angels rank up on rank and on that day hell will be brought within sight. On that day, man will remember all that he did and failed to do, but what will that remembrance avail him? He will say, "Oh." Would that I had provoked beforehand for my life to come. Oh, would that I had provided beforehand for my life to come. For none can make suffer as he will make suffer the sinners on that day. And none can blind with bonds like his. And none can bind with bonds like his. But unto the righteous God will say, O thou human, being that has attained to inner peace, return thou unto thy sustainer, well pleased and pleasing him. Enter then together with. My other true servants, yea, enter thou my paradise.
4: Podcasts at telegraph.co.uk Ukraine the latest is produced by Theodora Ludludis and Giles Gear, and on Twitter Sophie Co.
33: For joining us. Uh, it's good to talk to you again. Just a few days ago, Russian forces bombed a mil- uh, maternity hospital in Mariupol. You've called this latest strike that we were just watching on an apartment building in Kiev by Russian artillery, an example in your words of genocide in the 21st century. Now that's a, a very serious allegation. Are you, are you? Do you believe that Russian forces are deliberately
15: and specifically targeting civilians? Absolutely. It couldn't be so many mistakes. Kindergartens, schools, hospitals. More than 200 uh, schools are hit by Russians. Even you said about Mariupol and maternity house. One of uh, women, women who were injured that time, a pregnant woman, she died with her unborn child. That's an awful catastrophe. And now you see this absolutely residential building. And today there were three bombings in Kiev, and all three of them. We are just in areas without any military target, so it cannot be so many mistakes. No, it's absolutely tactics and strategic plan of Putin, because he just can't uh, win at our army, and that's why he started this terror against civilians.
33: Let's talk about the civilians. We on on this side, out here in Hungary and my colleagues in Poland, have spoken to many of the refugees who have fled the country for their safety uh, and that of their children. What about those people who have stayed, particularly in Kyiv, a city that is getting closer and closer to being, um, being surrounded by Russian troops? What are you hearing from the people who,
15: are, who have stayed and, and
33: are remaining there?
15: Certainly people are concerned, certainly people worry. But many of them joined joined civil guards, civilian militia, me included, and uh, uh, took weapons in their arms ready to defend uh, the city. Some of them do not want to leave their apartments. Some of of them don't have a possibility to leave their apartments. Many elderly people are staying still in Kiev. So uh, more than one million people are now in Kiev, and uh, certainly they are concerned, and everybody... This is what had happened with Mariupol, with Kharkiv. That's why we are so desperately asking for support to stop uh, Russian aircraft. We need aircraft. We are asking for air defense system, Patriots, stingers, things like this. We are not asking for NATO pilots. We can do everything ourselves, but please give us instruments to defend our women and children and to defend the whole free world. One of the things we've heard of is people coming across to these
33: other uh, NATO countries or uh, Eastern European countries, dropping their children off, sending them off to be taken care of by friends or or relatives, and then going back into Ukraine because of what you said, elderly parents. Uh, There are a lot of elderly people who are not mobile uh, still in Kyiv. As the city gets surrounded, we've heard that it could take 10 days to two weeks to surround the city, and then 10 days to two weeks for Kyiv to run out of uh, critical supplies. What Tell us what you believe happens then. What happens once the Russians have surrounded you and you don't have the air support that you're asking the West for?
15: First of all, even without uh, these air support, uh, uh, I just want to remind you that Putin was uh, thinking that he would take Kiev in two days. Then an American official said uh, to American journalists that they were given 96 hours to Ukraine, and after this we will fail. As you see now, it's almost 20 days, and we have not failed. And I'm sure we will not fail. And uh, Putin could not, uh, uh, and he will not uh, encircle Kiev. So I believe that uh, our army, which is holding the ground, will hold it for future. If they will penetrate to city, people like me, civilian militia will fight them on the street. But I believe that we will not need to do this and uh, I am absolutely sure that uh, the victory will be ours because it is our land and uh, when wheres our plan is to stay till the end and when you have moral like this you cannot lose
33: well, I have spoken to members of parliament every single day some of them have never held a gun in their lives they' have, they've got a firearm, they've learned how to use it, you are wearing your civilian uh, militia uniform. Tell me what it's like uh, being a member of parliament and being a member of uh, the militia. What is what is your life like now with these two different roles?
15: My weapons all, also is with me. Now it's always with me, my automatic rifle, that uh, I cannot be without it. And uh, yes, it's completely different life the war if something happened that changed the whole of our life and now we have like existential choice to be or not to be that is the question no other so I'm sure that we need to stay shoulder to shoulder with our people and it is important for people to see that all also members of the parliament like in the United States its congressmen are staying together with them shoulder to shoulder encouraging them by their example I think this is important so that's why me and I know yes a number of my colleagues are doing absolutely the same and I appreciate it very much.
33: Somebody was very run broadcast news channel saw this on their screens. That sign under, no war, reads, stop the war, don't believe propaganda, they're lying to you here. The woman holding that sign reportedly chanted, stop the war, no, to war. Now, the state-run network quickly cut to some other footage, and the woman, who is reportedly an editor at the network, and said in a pre-recorded message that she is ashamed to work for the Kremlin propaganda station, was quickly arrested. And she knew she would be arrested. Because 10 days ago, Russia passed and implemented a new law that says anyone who refers to the quote, special military operation in Ukraine as a war or an invasion could get up to 15 years in prison. Now, in the past several days, Putin has gone to even more extreme lengths to cut off Russia from the rest of the world. can't access Facebook or Instagram. There's restricted access to Twitter. Russia-controlled media calls reports about the war fake news, and if you're in Russia, Well, you will not see photos of innocent women and children who've just been slaughtered. You will not see this tragic image of a woman being evacuated from the maternity hospital that was bombed last week in Mariupol. We learned today that the woman and her baby did not make it. But you're shielded from that in Russia. If you somehow did see those images in Russia and decided that you stand against that destruction, if you dared to take to the streets and protest the invasion well, you'll be put in prison. It's been reported that nearly 15,000 people have been arrested in Russia since February 24th for the mere crime of protesting. Just this weekend, this person was arrested for holding up a blank protest sign. Over 800 people were arrested just this weekend. Well, now some people from across the globe are trying to get around that information chokehold to get a message to the people of Russia to deliver them the truth. And they're getting awfully creative. An online campaign to get information to Russian led people to flood Google and TripAdvisor reviews of restaurants in Russia. One person reviewed a Russian restaurant in Moscow saying, quote, your government is lying to you about the conflict in Ukraine. It's not a rescue operation. There are no Nazis there. In Norway, a computer expert launched a website that has led thousands of people to volunteer their time and send millions of spam emails to Russians urging them to oppose the war. The website allows users to get around Russia's strict online censorship restrictions in an effort to get the truth out there. Efforts to censor and use misinformation to block Russians for learning what Putin is truly doing are picking up steam.
3: central committee of the Chinese
33: Communist Party. Today it ran this article, U.S. tries to refute rumors about its bio labs in Ukraine. But can we believe it? The People's Daily actually ran a whole bunch of articles today on the supposed risk of U.S. bio labs in Ukraine and did basically all of the state-controlled Russian language press uh, touting the unfounded conspiracy theory. Today, the Russian ambassador to the U.N. convened a special meeting of the U.N. Security Council, where he baselessly alleged that the U.S. was funding biological weapons labs in Ukraine. The claims were rejected outright by the United States and the U.K., which called them utter nonsense. The U.N. also said that there's no credible evidence that the U.S. has been operating biological weapons plants in Ukraine. But this completely ginned-up story has become major news in both Russian and Chinese media. The New York Times reports that analysts who study disinformation from the two nations said this was the first time they had seen this scale of amplification between Beijing and Moscow around a conspiracy theory. And while that coordination is alarming... Encountering big lies like this is one challenge. The more immediate concern is that U.S. officials are warning that this new fake narrative about these bio labs could be Russia setting the pretense for an attack of its own. We know that Russia is not afraid to use internationally banned chemical weapons for assassinations. Russia used chemical weapons when poisoning former Russian intelligence officer Alexander Litvinenko in 2006, and again when it targeted former spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter in 2018. A chemical nerve agent was also used in the attempted poisoning of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in 2020. Russia also supported Syria's government in its efforts to cover up its use of chemical weapons against its own people. I don't even know where to begin with a problem like this, but luckily we have someone who does. Andy Weber was Obama's Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense. He was the person tasked with finding, removing, and destroying Syria's chemical weapons. He's also visited the research labs in Ukraine that are the subject of this new bioweapons conspiracy narrative. Joining us now is Andy Weber. He is a former assistant secretary of defense for nuclear, chemical and biological defense programs in the Obama administration. Andy, thank you for being with us tonight. You have been to those labs in the Ukraine that this fuss is all about. What are they?
19: Well, they're public health labs mostly, also animal health labs. They're similar to our Centers for Disease Control. Uh, We've been working with them now since 2015, or since uh, 2005, actually, to uh, strengthen their capacity to monitor, detect, and respond to infectious disease outbreaks to protect public health in Ukraine and to be part of an early warning system of infectious disease outbreaks so they can be uh, isolated before they spread around the world.
33: And the U.S. officials think that all of this talk about biological weapons and these accusations and this conspiracy theory may be a prelude to Russia itself using chemical or biological weapons in an attack. Uh, Do we know, uh, what what do you know about that and what do you know of their capabilities to be on that front?
19: Well, I, I do worry a lot. You gave some examples of Russia using banned chemical weapons in peacetime in those two assassination attempts in the United Kingdom and inside Russia. So it is a very real threat. I think it's more likely that they would use chemical or biological weapons than they would nuclear weapons, even though Putin has threatened the possible use of nuclear weapons. So uh, I think it is a a very serious concern. And the playbook is very similar to what has happened in Syria in recent years, where um, the regime, the Assad regime, uses chemical weapons against men, women, and children, and then blames it on the opposition. So it is possible that this escalation of rhetoric, which used to be um, sort of plants in the press and Bulgaria and the classic KGB disinformation campaign, but it's now escalated to senior official levels. Even the, uh, the Putin-She statement during the Olympics um, made this crazy accusation that the United States is somehow uh, supporting biological weapons. It's... Known to everybody that President Nixon ended the United States Biological Weapons Program in 1969, and it's Russia that has been violating
33: the convention
19: ever since.
33: So what do you make of this? You just made a reference to a a statement with uh, Chinese Premier Xi. What do you make of the Chinese state media echoing Russia's lie about these bio labs? What's, What's China's role or what's their goal here?
19: Yeah, it, it's a very interesting new development that started um, when the COVID pandemic first hit, and China, borrowing from the Russian disinformation uh, playbook, uh, accused the United States military of causing the uh, COVID pandemic. So the fact that that China is echoing um,
3: the Russian disinformation. It's very disturbing. It's as if uh,
19: President Xi is acting as President Putin's poodle in this case.
33: What What do we do when we gather information about things like this? If Russia were to stage a chemical um, weapon attack or or commit one themselves? What should the Russian well, What should the U.S. response? What should the Western response be? Well,
19: I think. We should continue to do what we've been doing um from the beginning which is as we get intelligence about planning for such attacks and our intelligence on russian military operations has been nothing short of exquisite we release that publicly as we're doing now in the hopes that it will deter putin and the russian military from doing something horrible like using chemical or biological weapons against civilians in ukraine as part of their uh, terrible uh, scorched earth policy. But we need to call them out on it, and we also need to uh, present the facts, and the facts are that Russia has three military biological weapons facilities that no international inspectors have ever been to. So it's clearly Russia that is violating the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention, not the United States.
0: How's everyone doing today? Happy Wellness Wednesday.
31: schools saying they are saddened to hear about what happened and that Juan's commitment and contributions continue to make a significant impact on students. Covering the crisis in Ukraine from the front lines, this is former ASU professor Juan Arredondo, looking much different than in this video, working in dangerous conditions as a war photographer. We're
27: going to film other refugees leaving, uh-huh. and we got into a car. Somebody offered to take us to the other bridge, uh, and we crossed a checkpoint, and they start shooting at us.
31: That happening in a city near Kyiv. Juan shown here in the hospital, injured. His colleague, American filmmaker Brent Renault, killed during that same attack, which police say was carried out by Russian forces. Juan's former students finding out on social media.
30: I didn't even recognize him in the video at first.
31: Kevin Hurley taking Juan's photojournalism course at ASU last spring.
30: He's an incredible journalist. The sacrifices he makes to tell the stories of the people that were being displaced during this war is Incredible.
31: Hurley always knowing Juan was more than just a professor.
30: During his class, we quickly learned through his examples of what he did in South America that he's been around conflict before, he's been around uh, military personnel. Honestly, this only cements what I want to do in life. One is somebody I look up to
31: ASU sending out a statement. The dean of the Cronkite school saying this reminds us of the significance of our work and the sacrifices that come with being a journalist and communicator. Ashley Paredes, is ABC 15 Arizona.
33: believed to be owned by a Russian oligarch. For decades, Russian billionaires have used London as a refuge to funnel and store their wealth. But as Redmond Shannon reports, those days may be ending.
34: They scaled the balcony and decided they wanted to stay. Until the legal
33: process has
34: been
17: followed, we will stay here, as is our right to protest.
34: They're calling one of central London's plushest mansions home. It's believed to be owned by recently sanctioned Russian billionaire and Putin ally Oleg Deripaska. The self-described anarchists say they are occupying the seven-bedroom building so it can be used to house Ukrainian refugees. In recent years, there have been growing calls in the UK for greater transparency surrounding the ownership of some of London's largest mansions to explain where the money has come from to pay for them. And those calls have come to a head since Russia's invasion of Ukraine various Russian individuals who have links to the Kremlin have donated to our political parties here in the UK. While Mayor of London, Prime Minister Boris Johnson played tennis with the wife of a Russian politician in exchange for a party donation. Influence spans across upper crust life here. So we've known about the the, the activities of, of Russia for a long time and only now when we're potentially on the, on the verge of World War III that uh, the UK government is, is, is clamping down on this. Some residents of one London borough say empty mansions owned by foreign shell companies are wreaking havoc on real estate and affecting ordinary Londoners. We have 3,000 families on the waiting list for a council house um, and we have four of the top 10 most expensive streets in England. Activists are calling for more transparency and better enforcement in seizing assets where the source of wealth can't be explained. And hopefully in the future then those sorts of direct action aren't needed. And despite the activists being arrested Monday evening, their direct action may be working. A British government minister has now also suggested that seized mansions should be used to house refugees. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. And that is Global National
33: for this Monday. I'm David Aiken. There is still much uncertainty for Ukraine, but we wanted to leave you tonight with hope for the future. Friends Marta and Polina fled to Germany while their parents stayed in Ukraine. Despite the raging conflict, the
18: teens say they will return to their homeland one day, not just to finish university or pursue
5: careers, but to rebuild Ukraine themselves.
17: We are not soft people. We are really strong and uh, we go going to rebuild our country and um, it would be rebuilt by people like me and Polina. Thank
33: you for watching. I will see you back here from the nation's capital tomorrow. Good night.